A reading from the book of Proverbs. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the watery depths were divided, and the clouds let drop the dew. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is destroyed. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the right of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. The word of the Lord. All right, well, good morning. Um, how incredible was it to have those uh, kids up here leading us in worship uh, this morning? It was a pretty exciting week at VBS, as you just heard a little bit about. Um, I am Paul Joslin. I'm the student's pastor here at Waterstone, which basically means this, that my summer is spent taking kids to camp and trips and then hanging out with kids at VBS um, here. So this last week, I had the privilege of um, leading the games crew for the older kids at VBS, which basically means I was an unglorified PE teacher. Um, but it was a lot of fun. Had a good time with it. Um, um, but what I, this, uh, several weeks ago when I was at camp with the high school kids, um, it was a week before VBS and I was talking with one of them and he was like, so what are you doing next week after we get home from camp? I was like, well, I'm still working. Like that's just, I work. And he said, you, wait, you still have to work like during the summertime? I was like, oh, okay. So there's this uh, disconnect here that when you're a kid, you get to do whatever you want during summer. And when you're an adult, you still have to work and the schedule doesn't change that much. Um, but one thing that does stay the same um, whether you're an adult or a student, is the fact that we go on road trips in the summertime. Any of you guys have a road trip planned or already been on a road trip this summer? Okay, a few of you guys, nice. Um, so here's the thing about road trips. Can we just be honest? Like, they're incredibly uncomfortable, but kids today have it a whole lot easier during road trips than we did. I mean, first of all, in each of their seats, the temperature is controlled by themselves, right? Like they can make it as hot or as cold as they want. Not only that, but they have their own seat. When I was on a road trip with my family, we just had a bench that we all had to share and we were fighting for space the whole time, right? And not only that, they have a plasma screen TV like right in front of their faces, right? Where they can watch whatever movie they want or whatever TV. And if all of that is not enough... They have built-in Wi-Fi in some of these cars now where the kid can be on their phone the entire time they're on a road trip. And, and you never have to hear the three sentences that every parent never wants to hear on a road trip, which the first one is, are we there yet? The second one is, I'm bored. And the third one is, I'm hot. And those three sentences were things that my brothers and sisters said all the time when we were on road trips when we were kids because our road trips looked a little bit differently than that. We had an old 1981 Oldsmobile rocket. Um, I think that's a picture of it. That's, uh, yeah, that's it. Um, first of all, the car was brown. They do not make brown cars anymore, and that's for a reason. Um, second of all, it was not a rocket. That thing was a box, 
And the worst part about it was is that the front seat was just one bench and the back seat was just one bench. And so me and my brothers and sisters would have to share all of this space with each other. And it got hot because the windows weren't tinted. And the only way to get AC into the back was if you like tilted the vents just right where it would like bounce off the roof and into the back so you could actually feel a little bit of it. Does anybody know what I'm talking about with that? I had one gentleman after the, the first service be like, hey, well, in my day, we didn't even have AC. And I was like, you win. That's, that's worse. You, I'll, I'll give you that one. Um, but it does feel like road trips are a whole lot easier today um, than they were back then. Because I just remember being incredibly uncomfortable on every road trip I ever went on. And, and because it was so uncomfortable, you had to learn certain skills in order to survive your road trip. So for instance, one of the things that, that me and my brothers and sisters learned really quickly was you had to divide the space of that bench to make sure you had your own personal space. Because if you didn't and they started creeping their stuff on you, you were going to end up against the door like all bunched up. And, and so my personal strategy was I was draw the line and say, if you cross this line, I'm going to punch you. And it wasn't a very smart strategy because when that happened inevitably, um, my younger brother would just be like, mom, he hit me. And then I'd be in a ton of trouble. So it wasn't the best strategy. Um, My brother had a better strategy that if we crossed the line, um, he would like push back, but he would barter in order to be able to get more space. So he'd be like, hey, if I can like stick my feet on your side, you can have this bag of Twizzlers, which worked every time until the bag was gone. And you're like, oh my gosh, I have no room anymore. So you have to learn to like draw some boundaries. You also have to learn how to distract the, the youngest siblings from being just like horrible and obnoxious. I, I swear, as an oldest son, it felt like my youngest brother, his job on a road trip was to see how obnoxious he could be for 900 miles. Like that was just his goal. And so we would have to come up with ways to like distract him. Um, and one that we had was to play the game I Spy. Has anyone ever played the game I Spy? So you say, I spy with my little eye, and then you say something like blue. And what we wouldn't ever tell my brother, my youngest brother, is that the thing that we spied that was blue was like the license plate on the car seven exits ago. So he would just have to keep guessing forever and ever and ever until he finally got it just to try to keep him occupied. Um, When I was talking to a few staff members this week, there was one staff member um, who will remain nameless because I don't want to out them. But she said that in their road trips with their family, they had a youngest sibling who was so obnoxious that the older kids decided that at a rest stop um, gas station to buy some child's medicine. um, And they literally drugged their younger brother to make him asleep for the entire trip, which I think you could get into a lot of trouble for doing that now. Um, And that's a little far for me, but still, nonetheless, you've got to fix the problem and you've got to make some hard choices. So um, they made theirs. Uh, and, and one of my favorite things about road trips um, is the interaction between mom and dad in the front seat. Because what would usually happen is that as me and my brothers and sister were fighting in the back seat, there would come a moment where they would have to decide whether they were going to do something or not. And and so as someone crosses the boundary or does something obnoxious and someone gets hit and there's crying and screaming and and you would always have the parents, they would be either mom or dad, didn't matter who, they would, one would look at the other and say, are you going to handle this? And the other one would look back and say, can't we just pretend they're not there? (laughs) And you knew that if they were going to pretend you're not there, that you were just going to have anarchy. You could get away with whatever you wanted. But if they decided they were going to do something, they were going to pull the car over at the next rest stop and you were going to get a spanking. And so like the rest of the trip, you had to be really, really on your best behavior. So that didn't happen. So what is so amazing about road trips is that even with all of this uncomfortableness, 
is that my family still made road trips like every single year that I can remember being a kid. When I was in Texas, we would take road trips out to Colorado because we wanted to escape the summer heat and get into the cool Rocky Mountains. And so we would do these like long 15, 16 hour drives to come here for summer vacation. Or or when I was younger um, and my grandparents lived in another state, we would do this long trip just to be with them at Christmas. And, And the reason why we were willing to put up with things that were so uncomfortable was because the destination was always worth it. And we always knew that being in the Rocky Mountains or being with grandpa and grandma for Christmas would be worth it. And so we could deal with the obnoxious little brother. We could deal with not having enough personal space or we could deal with being incredibly hot. Now the thing is today in our passages from the book of Proverbs, as we continue our series on on learning what it means to live wisely, we're going to be talking about a topic that honestly is going to feel a little bit like a road trip. As we talk through the topic of justice today from the book of Proverbs, there are going to be moments where you're going to be uncomfortable. And I know this because as I was preparing this message and reading through these different scripture passages, I felt uncomfortable as I kept finding out what they had to say to us and, and what they call us to. And there's going to be moments when I may say something or Proverbs may be read that you're going to feel like, nope, I don't want that. I'm going to draw a boundary. This is my space. You can't come in it. Or there may be a moment where you just decide to like kind of shut off and just distract yourself from what the Proverbs is trying to teach us about justice. And there's going to be a moment where we're going to have to decide, just like a parent in the front seat, if we're willing to engage with the injustices that we see in the world. And so I just want to prepare you up front that, that today might be a little bit of a bumpy ride, but just like any road trip, the destination will be worth it. And so I'm asking you this morning to stick it out with me as we look at what Proverbs has to say about us living justly in an unjust world. So before we jump in, let me pray um, for the Spirit to guide us. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, I ask that this morning, God, that as we open your scriptures, that you would speak to us. I pray that your spirit um, would be at work in each of our lives. I pray that you would confront us where we need to be confronted. I pray that as we unpack these texts um, that are full of ancient wisdom, God, I I pray and ask um, that you would reveal to us the places in our heart where we need to to live more justly. Um, It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So the first thing that we need to know about justice from the Proverbs is that justice is actually central to God's wisdom. It's a central component of his character and of his design for creation. Um, In Proverbs 3.17, it says, her ways are pleasant ways. And and her there is talking about wisdom. And it says, all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. And by understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the watery depths were divided and the clouds let drop the dew. Now what we see here is that wisdom is central to God's creation. By his wisdom, he organized and created the world that we see. And what this means is that there's not chaos to the world, that in his created design, there's an organization and an order to it. And the result of that order is what the Bible calls shalom. That creation was created for shalom. And and the word that we have for shalom right there is peace. Um, And and what this Proverbs is saying is that God created the world to function a certain way. And the result of that ordered function would be that people would experience 
his shalom and his peace. Now, one theologian puts it this way. He says, shalom, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in equity, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. All under the arc of God's love. Shalom is other words. In other words, is the way things ought to be. And what we see in Shalom is kind of this idea that as God was creating the world, he interwove people and his creation and himself in such a way that when they experience him and, and the fullness of what he intended his creation to be, Shalom would be the result. And you may be asking yourself, well, what does that have to do with justice? It's a beautiful thought. It's a great idea. But, but what does justice have to do with this idea of Shalom? And the reality is that in our world today, we don't see Shalom very often. Because of the fall and because of sin entering into our created order, instead of the order that God designed creation for, we see chaos. And we see things that are not as they should be. And the idea behind it is this, this idea of a fabric that, that, that God wove together in his wisdom a way that things ought to be and that justice is the restoration of the way things were intended to be originally. And that injustice is the frame of that fabric, the frame of society, the frame of that created order. And so if justice is central to God's wisdom and if we're people who are supposed to live justly and it's a part of who he has created us to be, the question becomes, well, how do we do that? And Proverbs 11, 10 through 11 kind of ties these ideas of shalom and justice um, in, in a way that, that works a little bit better for us, where we can understand what justice is. But before we get there, um, this past week, I was working with VBS, as I told you, as the PE leader. And as these guys would come out and play a bunch of different games and all the kids were coming out, um, they had different names because of the theme for the week was Heroes. And one of the names was like the Galaxy Greats, and another name was the Fantastic Force, and there were all these like cool superhero names. And one group that came out, I think they're in fifth grade, and they were the Justice Junkies was their name. And I was like, oh, this is gold. I, they're the Justice Junkies. I'm preaching on justice. I have to talk to them about what justice is. Um, so I asked them what it meant to them, like what the word justice meant to them. And the answers that they gave were actually pretty profound. So the first little boy that I asked him, his eyes just kind of got like real big. And he just looked at me and was like, oh, justice is too big of a word for me to know. I don't know it. And I was like, okay, fair enough. That's all right. Um, but when I thought about it, I was like, actually, justice does sometimes feel like too big to know what it is. I mean, in our society, so many different organizations and political groups have hijacked justice and turned it into the thing that serves them best. But we don't actually have a real clear grasp of what justice is. And it feels too big to try to engage with sometimes. The second person that I asked was a, this cute little girl. I mean, she was as cute as can be. Um, and when I asked her what justice was, she kind of gave it some thought for a little bit. And I thought like, oh, this is going to be good. She's like going deep in thought. And, and her answer was, it's a store in the mall. And I didn't know this, but there is actually a store in the mall called Justice where little girls can go to shop. And it looks like a little girl's dream come true. Um, and that was justice to her. And I was like, okay, fair enough. 
no, no judgment there. Um, I hope you have fun at justice. <laughs> and the third um, little boy that I asked, his face got real serious and I wasn't quite sure what I was going to get from him. When you're hanging out with kids, you never know if they're going to like love you or like punch you. Um, so I wasn't quite sure when his face got this serious what was going to happen. And, and his answer was actually incredibly profound. And it was actually incredibly close to the biblical definition of what justice is. What he said is that justice is something that has gone wrong that has been made right and has been fixed. And I thought, my goodness... You're in fifth grade and like you get this better than I think I do and most adults that I know. Justice is something that is wrong, that is being fixed and settled. And we see that in Proverbs 11, 10 through 11, when it says, When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is destroyed. Now, as I read that verse, you may say, I don't even see the word justice in there. Like, what does this have to do with justice? Well, the reality is, is that in, in our language, we translate the Hebrew word for justice often as righteousness or the upright. And, and what the Bible is actually using those words there are, are words for just. So it could say, when the just prosper, the city rejoice. And, and through the blessing of the just, a city is exalted. And the two words that the Hebrew um, teacher uses in this Proverbs are, are these. Uh, sedakim, which means this, primarily justice in social relationships that bring about dignity, harmony, and well-being for everyone. Another way that you could think of that is, is that it's primarily justice in social relationships that brings about shalom, which is the idea we just talked about. And the second one, it, it gets at the heart of what the kids said. Mishpat is rectifying justice, making right where there has been a failure of Sedekim. And so what we see in justice is that, that the way God has designed this created order and the way that he has interwoven us with one another is that when we live justly, things begin to function as they're supposed to. And people rejoice because the just are the ones who use their blessings to benefit and help others and, and, and bring back society into the fabric that it was intended for, which is shalom. And so if justice is this central idea to God's wisdom, this central concept, and we are called to live justly so that people can experience God's shalom, the question becomes, how do we do that? How do we live justly? And this is where Proverbs begins to feel like an uncomfortable road trip. Because the Proverbs that we're going to look at today, these, these ancient wisdoms, are going to push against some of our preconceived notions of what we think is right in the world. And, and what we think is the way it ought to be. Because we have our own wisdoms of what we think justice are. And we have our own ideas about it that in reality often are contrary to God's wisdom and what he says justice is. And so rather than turning the car around and just checking out, hang out with me just for a little bit longer as we, we learn a little bit more about what it means to live justly. The first way that we see in Proverbs to live justly is to care for the poor. Proverbs 29.7 says the righteous, and remember that's the just, care about justice for the poor. But the wicked have no such concern. And the way that this proverb is going to mess with us right off the bat and I, was, I thought this was crazy when I saw it, is that the word care there in that, that verse um, is a really powerful and rich and deep word of intimacy and connection. 
And in fact, the same Hebrew word is used in Genesis when it says that Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she bore him a son. And the idea behind it is that if people care about justice, if the righteous, the people who are following after God's wisdom, care about justice, they will tie themselves to the poor and to the oppressed. That they will care so deeply about the injustice that they see in the world, about the people who are experiencing injustice, that they will tie themselves together in the same way a man and a wife do in marriage. Where they say, whatever your fate is, my fate will be the same. It's kind of this idea of a captain going down with a ship that you have tied yourself so closely to those people that you are willing to care about them the same way you would a family member, a person who is a part of your life in a deeply intimate way. Now, this can look like a lot of different things, but basically what living justly and and caring for the poor looks like in practicality is being in relationship with people. And being in relationships specifically with people who are experiencing poverty or injustice. And one example of that is when I had just graduated college, I worked at um, the Boys and Girls Club um, for a a few years. And while I was working at the Boys and Girls Club, there was this one kid that that for whatever reason just kind of, well, I know the reason, I'll tell you in a second. He he just kind of caught my eye, and I thought he was the the sweetest kid in the world. Um, But he also didn't have a lot of friends. He was an incredibly um, chubby kid. Um, His name was Arnufo, and he was was honestly just kind of like this little roly-poly guy. Like, he was so cute, um, but all his friends would make fun of him because of his size and, and because he was slower on the soccer field and all of this stuff. And he was an incredible kid, though. He, he never missed school. He was constantly there. He was constantly wanting to learn. After school programs, he was always there. He was always doing his homework, always wanting to learn. Incredible kid. Um, never missed. But, but one time I came to, to the Boys and Girls Club, and I didn't see our new foe. And I wondered where he was. And, and I actually ended up not seeing him for several weeks. Um, and, and what you need to know about our new foe is he was a, a first-generation immigrant. And what I had come to find out is that when he came back, um, we were sitting down during snack time, and I asked him where he'd been and what had been going on, and um, he let me know that his dad had just been deported. Um, and now as someone from, from Texas, there's a certain way that you're supposed to think about immigration and specifically illegal immigration. But I can tell you when I sat down across from Arnufo and I saw the tears in his eyes at the fact that he didn't know as a seven-year-old if he was ever going to see his dad again, all of my preconceived notions about what justice was and what is right and wrong begin to crumble a little bit. Because the reality is when we are in relationship with the poor, they become not a political football that we can bat back and forth, but a person made in the image of God who deserves our love and our care. And the reality is that whatever we may think about different political issues, when we are in relationship with people who are experiencing injustice, our call is to love them in deep and profound ways, just like that proverb said. One, one theologian um, puts it this way. His name is Stephen Mott. And he says, when God's justice motivates us, our political loyalties and sim- sympathies will be profoundly affected We can then identify with the stress of the welfare mother whose income decreases because of the legislature avoids raising taxes. We shall feel the discouragement of the laborer who works full time yet remains in poverty. And we can feel the despair of a father in a developing country who sees the marks of torture on the body of his son who died in prison and wonders why money from a foreign country goes to finance a dictatorship infamous for its violation of human rights. 
You see, when we are in relationship with the poor and those who experience injustice, our preconceived notions begin to crumble and we learn to walk a mile in their shoes and empathize with the plight of the poor. And once we've come into relationship and have cared deeply and genuinely for the people who experience injustice, then we're forced to move to a place of action. And so the second thing that we see from Proverbs is that not only do we care for the poor, but we are also called by God to comfort the poor if we are to live justly. And comfort for the poor, that idea comes from Proverbs 19.17, where it says this, Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. And you may think that that sounds familiar because later in the Gospels in Matthew 25, Jesus begins to expound on this teaching where he says that if you visit the sick or if you feed the hungry or if you clothe the naked, then you have done so unto me. And we begin to see that in Proverbs and in Scripture that the the identity of the poor is actually expanded beyond just people who don't have money but to people who have experienced life less than it was intended to be, less than what God had intended them for when he created us for shalom. And so our our view is expanded of them, and that means we have to, to do something about the injustice that we see in the world, because when we do, we are doing it as if unto the Lord. And so this, again, can, can be a little bit overwhelming, to be honest with you. I mean, you may be sitting here and thinking like, Paul, I do not have time to actually comfort the poor. I'm trying to figure out how to raise my kids. I'm trying to figure out how to make sure that we just get food when they get home from school every day. Like, caring for the poor is the least of my concerns. I don't have the time to engage with it. It can feel incredibly overwhelming. And if I'm honest with you, I don't know what to do about the panhandler on the side of the road that I meet on my way to go downtown. Like, do I stop and give him money? Do I stop and buy him a burger? Do I stop and have a conversation? Do I just pretend I don't see him and look forward and and, and hope he doesn't look at me? Like, that feels overwhelming. Much less if we start talking about issues like abortion or mass incarceration or education equity. And we can begin to feel overwhelmed to the point where we just kind of throw our hands up and say, nothing can be done, the world will never become better, there will always be injustice, there will always be the poor. In fact, Jesus said that there will always be the poor, so we're kind of off the hook and don't really have to do anything about it. But the reality is that Proverbs does not let us off the hook. Proverbs does not tell us it's okay to throw up our hands. Proverbs tells us that we have to engage with those who are experiencing injustice and work to alleviate the affliction that they are under, under the breaking of the fabric of shalom. That we are to be people who work for justice on behalf of those who are not experiencing it. And the reality is that as overwhelming as that may seem at different times, no one ever makes the argument that because we will never be sexually perfect, that we should just throw it out the window and not care about sexual purity. Like no one makes that argument. And yet when it comes to poverty or injustice, we make the argument that, well, the world will never be perfect. There will always be injustice. There will always be the poor. So I guess we're off the hook and we don't have to do anything about it. The reality is that we are called to do something to comfort the poor and alleviate their affliction. And if you are like me and that feels overwhelming, then then let me just encourage you with this one thought. If you can pick one issue or one topic of injustice and, and tie yourself to it 
it will steer you in the ways of wisdom of living justly. And thankfully at Waterstone, we are a church that cares about justice. We are a church that works to provide justice for the poor, to fight against injustice. And we've got a lot of different um, organizations that we partner with and different um, opportunities for you to get involved with. And I would love to highlight just a few of them for you today. So if something sparks in you as we're talking about this, you can say, oh, that is a way that I can get involved with justice. And, and so the first one that we have for you guys is called the Denver Street School. And, and it's a school for impoverished children that's run by Christians and churches that helps give them the education that they need in order to, to get ahead in life and get back to where they were intended um, to be to achieve their dreams. Another one that we have is Joshua Station, which is an amazing organization that provides transitional housing for families that are coming out of impoverished situations where they're helping mothers and fathers get back on their feet so that their children have a home. It's affordable housing that they can have um, as they transition out of being homeless um, to owning their own place or, or being able to afford their own rent. Another one that we have is Open Door Ministries, which this one has a special place in my heart because every summer the junior high ministry goes down to Colfax and works with Open Door Ministries, um, where we spend a week on what they call the block. And, and it's literally a week where we encourage the kids to do justice and, and learn about what it means to live in poverty and in urban areas. Um, it's an incredible ministry doing a lot of great work on this place, um, the block. Another one we, we have partnership with is HIV CareLink, which is working to prevent the spread of AIDS and HIV um, in schools and, and other places. Another one that we partner with is Compassion, um, where you can sponsor a child for $38 a month and help them go to school, have food every day, um, and, and start working their way out of poverty. Um, my Compassion child is named Lionel. I love him. Um, I've never met him, but every month I send him a letter that says, I love you. God loves you and I believe in you. Um, and he's seven years old and I can't wait to see what he becomes. But that's another great way that you can get involved. Um, the final one that I have, I've highlighted is called Plant with Purpose. Um, and Plant with Purpose is a great organization. They're in the Dominican Republic and all over the world actually. And they are working with rural farmers to help them farm more efficiently in order that they can not only feed their families, but actually sell their produce to make a living um, to help bring their family out of poverty. And they're working really hard on empowering the poor um, in ways that, that let them and help them escape poverty. Um, and finally, if none of those things caught your attention, you can always talk with Jennifer Smith. She is our uh, missions and mobilization pastor here at Waterstone. Um, and her job is literally to help find people places where they can plug in with their gifts and passions and talents in order for them to make a difference in the lives of the poor and, and the impoverished. Um, so, so don't let the idea that it's too big or too overwhelming stop you from engaging. Just pick one issue and pursue it and see where the Lord leads you. In that. Finally, um, not only are we called to, to care for the poor and comfort the poor, but we're called to confront injustice from the book of Proverbs. And, and this one, if I'm being honest with you, is a little bit harder because this one requires us confronting sin within our hearts, sin within our friends and within our family, and, and confronting systems of injustice that would take advantage of those who are less fortunate than us. And as we begin to confront injustice, we are going to see that, that people are really tied to their systems of injustice. That we like to prop them up and we like to, to keep things the way they are. 
And, and so in some ways, this is the hardest one. Um, it comes from Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, where it says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and of the needy. And the reason that this one can be so difficult is because it pushes against places that we have deeply entrenched ourselves in systems that, that bring about the frame of shalom. And the call of the righteous, of the just, of the people who want to live wisely in God's creation is that we speak against those systems and those places where we see injustice and we confront them on the behalf of those who can't speak up for themselves. Which honestly is probably an idea that, that some of you might push back against a little bit and, and might feel like that sounds like political language that we hear in different places in, in, in the, the sphere of politics that we talk about. And there's some truth that has become a political idea, but before it was ever a political idea, it was a biblical idea. And the reality is that, that we sometimes find these ways, uh, and I do this too, of finding scapegoats where we don't have to deal with the reality of our world. And one of those ways that I think that happens is, is I feel this in myself sometimes. If I see a story on the news or, or a person on the side of the road that, that's experienced injustice or maybe poor, I, I have this resentment, honestly, resentment that builds up within myself. And I start having this conversation with myself where I say, you know what, that person doesn't deserve my help. That person is poor because of the choices that they have made. And I didn't make those choices. I didn't choose that. I've worked hard for what I have. And so they don't deserve my help. And I may even say something like that, that, that their excuses of systemic injustice are, are just that, excuses to excuse sinful behavior that have led them to the place where they are poor and experiencing uh, hardship in life. And I may even say that, that the family that they were brought up in didn't teach them the right way to live. And, and so that's the reason why they're experiencing poverty and justice because it was a family problem. And so I, I argue myself into a place where I can say they don't deserve my help. They don't deserve my money. They don't deserve my time. But the reality is that in Scripture, in the Proverbs, and in the life of Jesus, we learn that it is not about deserve. It is not about what you or I deserve because, because you and I deserved the punishment that Jesus took upon himself. And when he took that punishment, when he placed himself in harm's way on our behalf, he did not look at us and say, you do not deserve to have my help. As we were nailing him to the cross, he did not say that you do not deserve to have my help, that it was your choices that led you to this place and it was your behavior that has led me to this place where I have to die, but you don't deserve it. He didn't say that at all. In fact, he turned to his father and he said, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And the reality is, is that we see in Jesus this example of that it's not about deserve. It's not about what we may or may not have done. It is about his grace and his mercy for us. 
And that even when we don't deserve something, he still gives it to us freely and openly and in love. And that is the destination. The destination of Jesus' life was the cross. It's what he lived for and it's what he calls us to pursue and to follow after, to take up our cross on behalf of others, to pursue him, pursue his justice and his version of righteousness. And when we do that, we begin to see the fabric of shalom come back together and the world be as it ought to be. And we begin to see that even though I don't deserve, God still gave to me. And so from that place, I can give to someone who I may think does not deserve my help. One uh, theologian, again, Stephen Mott, he says this. If we look upon those who are in, the, in need the way God looked upon us, we can no longer subscribe to the notion that the needy are deserving of their lot. If our own worth depends as it must on what God has done in Jesus Christ, then all our claims to superiority crumble into dust. According to the Apostle Paul, we are all saved by welfare. An attitude of grace towards society will cut through the rationalizations and stereotypes used to defend the advantaged positions of our class, race, or sex. The spirit of suspicion and resentment will be replaced by one of generosity and readiness to help. When we understand the sacrifice of Christ for ourselves, then the sacrifice that we make on behalf of the poor, where we maybe give them a little bit of our time or money, pales in comparison to the greatness of what Christ has given us. And it's from that spirit of gratitude that we can have the courage and boldness to care for the poor, to comfort them in their afflictions, and to confront the injustice wherever we may see it. May Waterstone be so bold and so brave. Let me pray. It's in Christ's name that we ask all of these things, Lord, that, that because of his sacrifice and the beautiful name of Jesus and what he has done for us, God, because of, of the sacrifice that your son made, that we are able to stand here and know that we are forgiven because you took our place. I pray, Father, that, that the depths of that sacrifice would sink deep into our hearts and to our souls. That it would convict us and that it would change us and transform us into people who live for justice, who seek justice on behalf of the poor and the oppressed. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.